kind of sexy like her. And it's showtime. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the thir first Thursday of the month, which means it's time for Talking Healthy Skin Without and Within, something like that. I can't remember. I, I got I got 28 shows a month. I can't remember all the show titles, but I do remember my guest because she is an amazing plant-based dermatologist practicing in New York. She answers your questions. It's always best to send them in in advance so we have them all cataloged nicely and can save them if we don't get to all the questions because there are so many for Dr. Pratt, probably because everybody has skin. Please welcome her to the show. It's so good to see you again. Hi, Chef AJ. Always a highlight of my month getting to join you and your audience. Well, you know, it's a highlight of my day when you told me right before we logged on that somebody had seen you here and actually came to you as a patient. That's remarkable. Uh, actually, a few people this week, and I wonder if any of them are going to be seeing this right now. And uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to get to help people with their skin who, you know, we all, we're all thinking along the same health lines and wanting to be our healthiest self selves from the inside out this it, it action yeah that your sound just you had a little sound uh where'd you go there you go could you speak again because i your sound kind of went oh did you hear me say um it's a pleasure to yeah. see these pa see patients who have are coming from your audience yeah i think it's yeah. i love it i love it that, you get to help I, people I know that Dr. Scott Harrington, who has a regular slot, had gotten some patients too. Was that, that's really what I see myself as sort of like the hub for information for people. And that's my job. And I do it plant-based. So thanks to all of you for watching. So we have so many questions. We're going to just jump right in. Okay. Yes. Thanks. The first one is from Gita. And she says, I have discoloration on my forehead from the last five years. I'm 62 in menopause. I have read that it is because of hormonal changes and it is called melasma. I have no other skin issues. So maybe you can talk about what melasma is, who gets it, what we can do about it. Oh, is that the end of her question? Yeah, that's all she said. Okay. Well, she yeah. said, thanks for introducing us to amazing people, but that's, that's also in the email. Melasma is very complicated. It is the best you can do is reduce it and then maintain it. Um, it is can be just genetic and familial. It can run in families and be, you know, um, normal for your family and your skin type. It can be uh, related to hormones and sun exposure, the skin that has high estrogen, and then also goes into the sun may have a trigger of melasma, which is a deeper, sort of a deeper form of pigmentation that's hard to remove from the outside in. And it used to be called the mask of pregnancy. It's a, it's a common type of a pigmentation that can occur during pregnancy, which goes to show you that it's very hormonally triggered and it would form in these, in this common pattern on the face and used to be more common in the past. I don't think we see it as much now, but it also can form during change of change of life pattern. We know triggered by Exposure. It's not just the sun. So people who cook a lot, people who are around uh, heating sources, 
or who are tend to be hot can also get this pigmentation forming in the skin just from the heat exposure combined with the hormonal exposure from the inside out. By the way, men also get this. So it's not just estrogen in women causing it, but it's tricky for everybody. What we can do is use the creams are bleaches, uh, kojic acid, some of the lighter type of chemical peels, very gentle laser treatments that might be safe for your skin type, which can be very tricky, the darker your skin tone is. And the most important factor is to completely block the sun. Not only do ultraviolet rays cause trigger melasma, but we also know now that visible light, which is when you see daylight, that is the trigger. Has been now to trigger melasma. The best type of sunscreen that can prevent it or re help reduce it is a sunscreen that unfortunately needs to be tinted because it contains what we call iron oxide. It's not the titanium dioxide and it's not the zinc oxide, it's iron oxides. And I'm sure the chemists among us are hearing me say that and realize that when iron oxidizes, that's rust. So it's actually a little bit of rust that's in, that turns these sun, the reason that the sunscreens need to be a little bit tinted brown. Those block the visible rays as well as the ultraviolet rays, and they work better for melasma than the untinted sunscreens. So that's just a little bit about melasma. It can, I could go on and on, but the main thing is remember, look for the iron oxide in your sunscreen and wear it basically around the clock if you want to support any treatment you might be doing. And finally, uh, I learned a lot when I heard about this research study that showed that iron sunscreen actually faded underneath it in a separate treatment. So if you're able to, oh, sorry. You're, you're freezing, you know, this has never happened before because I see you're in the same location, but you are freezing quite a bit and your sound is lagging. So we are missing bits and pieces because oh, I'm so sorry. It's, yeah. I don't know what to do at this point. Cause if we log out, we'd have to start over. I don't know if, if, if how's the internet been on your end or um, anything. I am not aware of any problems on my end. All right. Well, let's just, um, I'll continue to pray to the technology gods, but you said something that sounded really important about the research you, you, you read about either iron or iron oxide or something like that. I thought you were saying. The most, the, I learned a lot when I learned about a study that showed that just wearing the iron oxide sunscreen alone for every single day, even through the summer helped melasma fade on its own, even without doing additional treatments. So I think that that's how important that sunscreen is for melasma. Yeah. So, so if I understand you with melasma, if, if somebody was never exposed to the sun or the parts of the body that have never been exposed to the sun won't get it, is that true? I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent, but that's a big factor. Uh, I also you know, said that heat alone can be a factor and your own skin blood flow it turns out from underneath your skin, producing the heat and the warmth in your skin may also be a factor. So I can't say if you never ex are exposed to the sun, you'll get zero melasma, but it would greatly reduce it. Great. Thank you. 
Okay, well, here's the age-old pun intended question from Susan. How can I get rid of bags under my eyes? Bags, we use the term bags under the eyes to mean a few different things, you know, colloquially and in conversationally. Bags that stick outward under the eyes are usually a natural anatomical fat pad that we all have. And as we get older, especially can run, this can run in families, those tend to get loose and to fall forward. That can be fixed surgical person. Also call the hollows under the eyes bags, and those can be improved with filler that can take up the space and lift the skin away from the structures underneath. And some physicians also do uh, treatment with lasers to help to even out the coloration or to tighten the skin a little bit. So those are really your best bet. Creams don't do very much, but you may try a cream with some green tea or some retinol and see if that will help too. What did our ancestors do? They, they, they didn't have any mirrors or anything in the stone age, so they probably didn't notice a lot of these things. I would say they didn't even think of it or care. It's definitely a modern cultural phenomenon that we're this aware. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right, here's a question from, is there a name? Diana, can you explain the cause of Grover's disease, how to treat the cause and how to treat the symptoms of severe itching, burning, and sensation? I never heard of that. That Was it named after Grover Cleveland or somebody? Don't it was named after Dr. Grover. Um, and I'm sorry for Susan that we don't exactly know the cause of Grover's disease, which is a common very common skin condition, especially in women, especially of middle age and older who, and it's a, a very itchy, bumpy rash that starts to form in the chest and the upper, the lower rib cage area, the upper abdomen, it can form all around the trunk. And we don't know what triggers it lately. Um, I actually had a patient who, who feels that she got better taking a treatment for cold sores, an antiviral pill. So that's just one anecdotal story. And I'm willing to try it on other patients. I don't know if it would help anybody else, but we usually use anti-itching creams. We use anti-inflammatory creams and just try to soothe it, but it is very stubborn. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. This is from Marsha about having very dry skin. What's the best way to find relief for very dry skin? I live in a dry climate that makes it worse, but I've always had dry skin. When I ask a doctor about it, they say to put lotion on. It doesn't really help. There's so many lotions. So which one? I've gotten tests for thyroid functioning. Everything is normal. I'm a 63-year-old female that isn't getting better with age. My skin is so dry. I'd love to find the magic thing that works to heal my skin. My skin isn't red or irritated, just dry and flaky. Would it be okay to use coconut oil or olive oil on my skin? Dry, you know, dry, very, very, very dry skin can be a medical condition and it can be an alteration of certain genes that may produce cells that don't adhere to the skin as well as other people's or don't hold onto moisture as well as other people's skin. So it could even be a genetic condition. It could be even a very mild version of a 
genetic condition called ichthyosis. And ichthy is the, is I think probably the Greek, probably the Greek, maybe Latin root for fish. So it's like fish scales. That's how dry the skin can be. That can be a very, very severe condition from birth, but it can also be extremely mild and just present as very, very dry skin for your whole life. One of the most important things is to create an artificial barrier on the outside of your skin that will prevent your own skin's internal moisture from escaping. And I would say it's known, although I don't know how all of your audience feels about this, that the number one barrier for skin in in this situation is actually plain petroleum jelly, Vaseline petroleum jelly, purified petroleum jelly, It is purified of any um, toxins and it's the most, it's the, it's the most barrier protecting and reproducing cream, if you will, that we have, it's really an ointment. It's, it's, you know, feels greasy, but short of that, one of the creams that is shown to be formulated, that's commercially available. That's one of the most moisturizing. That's not that greasy is CeraVe cream. You know, I don't normally mention brand names, but that is one that does have more sealing barrier protection than some of the other creams on the market. And lotions, I, I don't use that term lightly. When I say lotion, I mean it in a scientific way. It's formulated differently from a cream. Creams are more rich and more protective and lotions have a little more water they absorb in, so they feel less greasy, but they also work less well for this situation. So I would tend toward an ointment and then to a cream. Oils may absorb in, but then they don't sit on the skin creating that barrier, which is actually what's important. So you might do a little bit of an oil and then actually seal it in with an ointment or even put a cream on top and do the combination, the layered treatment. Reducing water exposure and soap exposure will always be key to keeping the skin less dry. What is petroleum jelly? I mean, is it a natural thing? And is it, is it vegan, for example? Petroleum jelly is natural. As far as I know, it's actually a byproduct of the breakdown of living material. And that includes plants and probably dinosaurs. Um, so if you're a very, very strict vegan and you don't want to abuse dinosaurs who are not coming around again, um, maybe not you avoid that we, that we know. jelly. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, excuse me, I misspoke. There's a company that is taking um, dinosaur DNA and they're trying to recreate a, the pterodactyl, which was the, the flying dinosaur. There's another company recreating a woolly mammoth, but that's not technically a dinosaur. That's a mammal. Sounds like a movie in the making. I think they already made it Jurassic Park and we all (laughs) saw what happened. So anyway, uh, petroleum jelly is purified. It's just this ointment. um, And it was from plants also. So if you're plant based, you don't have to be totally against petroleum jelly if you, depending on how you want to think about it. Great. Thank you. Uh, This is from Gary. I'm a 72-year-old whole food plant-based vegan male that has sun-damaged forearms that bruise very easily. How can I rebuild my forearm collagen? Do you think plant fusion vegan collagen builders would help? Also, is there any evidence that 
far infrared or meto red light therapies work and what advice would you give your patients? The red light therapies are relatively new technology. I don't know if there's proof yet on how well they really work to rebuild the collagen. Um, definitely anything that's vegan that is a, that supports the production of collagen is fine with me. Um, vitamin C is also a big collagen building block. So plenty of fresh um, vitamin C fruits and vegetables, brightly colored bell peppers and, and citrus, and something like a plant-based retinoid, such as bakuchiol is that molecule we've talked about before. That's the plant-based alternative to the retinols, the retinoids, the retinase, and that may help. In addition, something like a glycolic acid or a lactic acid can help to exfoliate the outer layers of the cells, which does trigger new cells being formed and new skin being formed, and that can help boost collagen as well. So all of, all of the above. You always talk about this Bacuchiol. Is that something that's available without prescription? Bacuchiol is definitely available over the counter. It used to only be in one or two products that I knew of, but now a lot of companies are using it. It's spelled B-A-K-U-C-H-I-O-L, Bacuchiol. I don't know in the long run if it will prove to be as effective as the retinoids, which are vitamin A derivatives, but it is definitely in the same family of ideas and it's plant-based. Right. But is there anything unvegan about Retin-A? Well, as far as I know, it depends on how they make it in the lab. And, you know, vitamin A is, is, is found in animal livers, but I don't know what the different companies are using to make their own retinol, retinaldehyde, uh, and retinyl palmitate and tretinoin. So I guess we would have to research with what, what each company's exact process is. I don't know the answer. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. This is from Catherine. I'm a 62-year-old woman living in the UK. About four years ago, my eyebrows fell out and so did all the hair on my arms and legs. I thought it was just because of menopause. More recently, I've been sore and itchy above one of my ears and at the front of my hairline. I've lost quite a bit of hair in these places. I did some research and thought I could have frontal fibrosing alopecia. I went to my GP and he agreed, but he said there was no point referring me to a dermatologist because there was nothing they could do. Do you agree with this? And am I just to accept that I'm going to lose a lot of my hair? And if I'm going to lose it, how soon? Frontal fibrosing alopecia and is, is an autoimmune attack by your own body's immune system on your hair follicles. They do, uh, in the United States, some more experienced dermatologists and rheumatologists, the autoimmune doctors, um, are using powerful systemic medications that can help reduce your immune system activity that may help to reduce the activity of the autoimmune attack. So I don't know if it's useless, but it might be a bit of an adventure to find a doctor who is able to look into that research and maybe try that for you. I don't, I don't know how things are in the UK in, on that front. 
But once the hair falls out for whatever reason, like your eyebrows or like eyelashes, does it ever grow back? Alopecia is the term for hair loss. And that's a very general term that encompasses all types of hair loss. Within alopecia are the scarring and the non-scarring alopecias. The non-scarring alopecias mean the hair follicle is still there. There's just something wrong with how it's working. So it may be shrinking, which is can be hormonal or age, or, or it may have an autoimmune condition where um, inflammatory cells are attacking the root and stopping the function, or you might have a nutritional issue with hair growth. Those types of hair loss may be reversible or at least improvable. Once the follicle is scarred in the scarring alopecias, the follicle itself is gone. The the tissue there turns into scar tissue and basically your skin has melted or eaten up the follicle. It's completely gone. So in scarring alopecias where it has been replaced by scar tissue and you can't see microscopically tiny little dots there anymore at the site of hair follicles, you might not be able to grow hair back. Uh, it would be very hard for you to see this on yourself. Your doctor would have to look, but if you can still see little dots where the follicles should be, you might have the non-scarring type and, and there could potentially be some hope. Great. Thank you. Uh, there's some conversations in the chat about is Vaseline safe everywhere, like on the lips and in the nose. Okay. Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Vaseline is safe on the lips. Um, you know, it's safe to swallow it a little bit here and there, but try not to lick your lips. That's never good to lick the lips and eat the stuff that's on your lips. Just try to leave it there, but it's not dangerous. What it's not really considered safe by many doctors, especially pulmonologists, that's lung doctors and ENT doctors. It's not necessarily considered safe to put Vaseline in your nose. A lot of doctors say, put it in your nose to help moisturize your nasal passages, if you tend to get dried out nasal passages and get nosebleeds because Vaseline is such a good moisturizer and barrier protector. But if we, if the Vaseline melts in your nose and it, and you, we breathe it in or it leaks backwards into the lungs, we can actually get granulomas and infections and inflammation in the lungs because the Vaseline is not, our, our, our bodies cannot break it down. It's like, um, how would we know if we had this and how would we know if it was actually caused by the Vaseline? If you, well, if you've been putting Vaseline in your nose for a long time and you start to have issues with breathing or a medical issue, you would eventually find out. Otherwise, I'm not really sure there would be a way to know there's a problem. So if you're already doing it, I would suggest asking your doctor if they're comfortable with it um, and maybe stopping or asking them if there's an alternative. One thing that I know is safe is saline, which is just salt water, saline nasal sprays. The ones that are made for being nasal spray are sterile. They're like, medical. Like Neil, Neil MD, that company makes one. Right. There are a few on the market. Uh, don't try to make your own salt water at home out of tap water and do and put it in your nose because if there are any microorganisms in it, that's also dangerous. But if you get a medical grade saline spray to moisturize your nasal passages, that's definitely safe. Right. Well, my, my ENT doctor up here said it was safe, but I know I've heard Dr. Greger say it isn't. So who do you listen to? Huh? On the uh, saline or on the Vaseline? On the Vaseline. On the Vaseline. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's why I'm saying it's not every doctor has the same ideas about it. Some are completely fine with it and some are more nervous about it. So I can't say there's a consensus. Right. Thank you. So um, Sharon, I know you have a question in the chat. And the reason I didn't ask it is because I have a very, very similar one that was already pre-submitted. The reason we prefer you to pre-submit questions, especially when they're popular doctors, is because what you guys may not understand is even though you're watching this show somewhere, either on one of the many platforms of Facebook and the private groups that I host, YouTube, Twitter, uh, I, I'm multi-streaming. And so while you may see a couple of words on your chat, mine goes like a ticker tape. So when you submit questions in the chat, they disappear for me within minutes. I can't save them. But when you submit them through my website, chefaj.com, I archive them. And then, you know, we're going all the way back to October for Dr. Lyle. So that is the reason to submit them in advance. And then if you don't watch, our team emails you and says your question was answered. So thanks for understanding about pre-submitting. Chefaj.com, we send out one email a week announcing the lineup, and then you just write back who the question's for. And very important, if it's anonymous, say it in the first sentence, because I can't tell you how many times I read the whole thing and they go, don't say my name. You got to help me out that way. So here's one from Dixie that is sim similar to what Sharon posted. What do you do for healing? If you've been told by a dermatologist that you have sun damaged skin on your face and Sharon in the chat said, what is the best way to lighten age spots, sun damage on the legs, laser treatment. So it's a very similar question, prescription lightening cream, et cetera. So just maybe you can talk about sun damage wherever it occurs. Well, I will say first and foremost, there are two types of sun damage at least, but the two that cause discolorations fall into the two, the two that I want to talk about are sun damage that is potentially dangerous, that could be pre-cancerous and could eventually turn into skin cancer and sun damage that is not dangerous and will never turn into anything bad. And is a, just a, not just, but is a cosmetic issue, but not a medical issue. So part of one of those questions, I don't know which one was about healing the face from sun damage. And that might be, how do we improve the red, rough, flaky, or possibly tender or painful sun damage that is potentially precancerous? We can do that with lasers. We can do that with uh, freezing those spots with liquid nitrogen. And that is truly a form of, med I, I tell my patients, I'm giving them medical frostbite. I'm intentionally giving them little spots of frostbite, trying to kill the damaged cells so they will die, fall off, and that your skin will recognize there's a wound there and it will heal with fresh and healthy skin. So that's pretty easy because I do it for you. You go home and two months later, we check to make sure that the precancerous cells are gone. A third option is there. Are, there's a cream. There are a few creams that we can use. One of them is actually a chemotherapy medicine that we use internally by IV for internal cancers, but it comes in a cream. It's very, very effective for killing the precancerous cells on the outside of our skin. We apply the cream for several days to a few weeks, depending on your doctor's preferred instructions. There's another cream that works with your own immune system it, it introduces the damaged DNA to your immune system and tells your immune system, this is foreign, help me get rid of it. And your immune system will rev up and fight off those precancerous cells. So those are a few different ways to get rid of precancerous sun damage. The benefit of treating them is 
often when those are healed, and the question was about healing, when those do heal, the skin looks better. So we, we improve the redness, we improve the dry flakiness, and we get back to a better color and texture of skin. Discoloration that's brown, that's much, actually, it's a little bit trickier to, in a way to get rid of because the brown pigmentate, pigment issues are stubborn. We, we need a combination of constant sunscreen, even that tinted sunscreen I mentioned before with the iron oxide ingredient. We need potentially some laser treatments, although some lasers may make some of those spots darker. We may want to do chemical peels. We may want to do different types of skin products, including those retinoids or the bucuchiol, kojic acid, azelaic acid. Those are some gentle, safer brightening agents. They work very, very slowly, but over many months, they do help to fade the creation of pigment by our pigment cells. And I don't know if I forgot to mention anything else, but it, I can always come back around. That question will come back around. So I'll say more later. Yeah. Laser treatments. Um, are those, are those effective? Yeah, they, as I mentioned, they can be effective if it's the right laser and you have the right skin tone for it to be safe. Lasers can help remove individual brown spots or rejuvenate the skin overall, which helps to get rid of the brown while improving the collagen quality and rejuvenating in general, helping to fight fine lines. Lasers range from just tackling the surface color all the way to a extremely deep rejuvenation that risks scarring and infection, but if handled well and carefully with between you and your doctor can really be quite a dramatic rejuvenation. Right. Do these treatments hurt? Some of the lasers really don't hurt. You don't need any numbing. They, uh, some of them you touch you with a cold piece of glass. So that coolness keeps your skin cool. Some of them blow a little shot of cold air or have a cold fan blasting you while you're getting the treatment. But for many of them, we do numb in our office, at least with a numbing cream on the face for between 30 minutes and an hour. Some of the more aggressive laser treatments, more assertive laser treatments uh, actually do require some sedation by IV medication. So there's a whole range there too. Yeah. You know, back to the nose, uh, people are saying, Karen saying the saline in the nose, but if it, if it gets raw, just on the inside right there, like, is there something to put on? Like, I guess at the opening, the entrance to the nose. If the entrance to the nose is raw, from friction, like you've had a cold and you're just blowing your nose a lot, I, it is safe to put Vaseline around the outside edges of the nostrils. That's for sure. But there are some inflammatory conditions and some infections and some other issues that cause redness and soreness around the opening of the nostrils. Some of them require prescription medication. So in that case, if something is not getting better with a, with gentle treatment and a moisturizer, I would recommend seeing your dermatologist. Great. Thanks. This question is great because I don't know if people realize you're not only a board certified dermatologist, but you're also board certified in lifestyle medicine and can coach people in lifestyle. So this is a question from Lori and she says, has there been any research on doing allergy or sensitivity testing like with dairy gluten in relation to it possibly triggering a psoriasis outbreak? As far as I know, there is some research linking dairy to psoriasis. I'm sure 
that for people who are sensitive to gluten or or the glyphosate, which is the pesticide that some people speculate maybe what is triggering gluten sensitivity, especially in Americans. Um, I'm sure that anything that triggers inflammation in your body may flare your psoriasis if you are tend to be prone to psoriasis. So I, I do, I am recognize some link with the dairy that I, that I do know about already. It wouldn't at all surprise me about the gluten. Great. Thanks. Well, they can always try, you know, they can take it out and then see, do an experiment, see if they get better. And I can investigate too. And if I come up with anything, I can come back with a follow-up on that. Perfect. This is from Georgianne. She says, would you agree with the use of glycerol as the least harmful body moisturizer, given it's the only moisturizer that the Gerson Cancer Center diet clinics recommend? That's a great and very specific question that I don't know the answer to. I would have to investigate that one too. Great. Uh, do you have any moisturizers that you like or recommend? I know you don't, you're not sponsored by any brands, so you're not selling it. So. Well, I mentioned CeraVe cream already. You know, there are some very gentle brands, like there's one called Pipette, P-I-P-E-T-T-E. They use a, a molecule called squalene, squalene that is very gentle and safe to use. So I don't know if there's only one safe moisturizer out there. Great. Thank you. Uh, this is from Norell. How important is it to apply sunscreen 20 minutes before exposure to the sun? I'm a regular beach goer and see so many people putting sunscreen on themselves and their children when they arrive. Does it really take some time to absorb before you're protected? And she's watching all the way from Australia. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, Australia is a country that knows a lot about sunscreen they have a program for a few decades now called Slip Slop Slap, which is has really greatly reduced melanoma in Australia. And that is something like slip, slip on the uh, sun protective clothing, slap on sunscreen and uh, slop on sunscreen and slap on a hat. And that just shows you that sun protection is multifactorial. It's true that sunscreen other than the fact that if it's white and it's on your skin, it's the white opaque cream is physically blocking the sun. It does take those 15 or 20 minutes for the chemicals in the sunscreen to change the structure of the protection in your skin. So if you put sunscreen on at the beach, your protection won't really kick in for 15 or 20 minutes. If you want to be protected the minute you step onto the sand, you do have to put it on before. And I learned something very interesting from a, a, a chemist a couple of years ago. Even though we have the physical blockers, I'm going to upset people right now with what I'm about to say. Even though we have the physical blockers, the zinc oxide, the titanium dioxide, and the iron oxides, and we have the chemical sunscreen ingredients. We're used to thinking of the chemicals as dangerous and the physical ingredients as, as safe. Um, but I used to think that the physical sunscreens work by physically creating a barrier and reflecting the rays off your skin and they don't that they didn't go into your skin. But it turns out that is not actually true. 
they do go into the cells and they do alter how the cells work. They do create a little network of protection. It's not as different from the how the chemical ones work as we thought. It's not just that they're sitting on the surface reflecting. So both types of molecules do go into our skin a little bit. We, of course, want to pick the safer ones, but the safest is to either not go in the sun or to use sun protective clothing. Right. Okay. That's good to know. Thank you. And here's a question from Linda. Is there anything topical that will remove skin tags? Well, if you watch late night TV and see all the infomercials, you will believe that there's something you can buy that you just put on these tags and they fall off. Unfortunately, um, what I see them advertising in those ads are they're showing people treating things that are not just skin tags. They are viral infections, they're little skin cancers. So I would never try to treat these things at home with a chemical just to make sure that what you're treating is, is something safe, first of all. The second answer is that I don't know of anything that you could be sure to buy that you could put on and burn your own skin tags off at home. So I'm gonna say no to that one. You probably should get those spots at least reviewed by a dermatologist ask them for the easiest thing you can do. That's the most affordable, but I don't know of a true home remedy that I would feel safe recommending or, or even one that really works. Wouldn't that be something infomercial on DIY skin tag removal? <laughs> oh, it already exists, but people oh, are using God. it for dangerous things. So. Wow. That sounds terrible. I can't even prick my own finger, you know, like, you know, they want you to do those little tests, like, thank God I'm not diabetic, but that I can't even do that. So. Anyway, I'm a grown woman. I still have to get anesthesia for a teeth cleaning. Not, not, not general anesthesia. I mean, just, you know, the topical, you know what I mean? I'm a, yes. Yes. No, not, 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 not that type of anesthesia. Okay. So this is from hmm, DH. Do you know how to get rid of and manage HS, hydrodenitis suprativa, naturally for best results or other methods? Hydradenitis suprativa, uh, something I unfortunately have seen increasing over the past few several years. Um, it is another autoimmune, that's your own immune system, uh, creating an inflammatory attack on your skin. And it's a condition that creates inflamed bumps and cysts and eventually scarring and tracks, which are little tunnels under the skin in the skin fold areas, under the arms, under the breasts, in the groin area. And it can really be awful, debilitating, painful, un, you know, embarrassing and uncomfortable. So it's a really a terrible condition. It's, it's uh, again, uh, autoimmune. It's very immune system related. So luckily we do have some ability to help ourselves a little bit. Um, we know that things that Flare, for example, psoriasis are also things that may trigger hydradenitis. That is smoking. That is what they call obesity. You know, carrying a lot of extra weight can make things worse. Um, not only because it increases the pressure in the skin fold areas, but also because uh, that tissue is inflammatory. So it just creates a higher tendency to have an inflammatory cycle happening in your body. And we also know that research shows that dairy in the diet 
and yeast, and especially brewer's yeast, which is the yeast that they use for beer, brewer's yeast and dairy, and I think a little bit of baker's yeast, which is the yeast used for bread, are shown in research to flare and increase hydradenitis superativa. So coming from my lifestyle medicine hat, and along with my dermatology hat, I would say that anyone with hydradenitis, if you're able to try to eat in a very clean, whole food, fruit and vegetable uh, and whole grain way, reduce risen bread, reduce breads, reduce alcohol, reduce smoking, reduce dairy to zero and try to reduce the inflammation that's happening from within, it might help reduce the inflammatory cycle of all of the lesions and start to heal them a little bit. You may also need medication and sometimes you need a little bit of surgery, but I think if you're also helping things from within, you have a much better shot at getting to a place where you're more comfortable and maybe stopping the constant flaring. Great. Thank you. Never heard of that condition, nor have I heard of this one, or this may be some medication. I'm not sure. This is from Marie. Can you explain what pro P-R-O-F-H-I-L-O, Prof Hilo does, and what can I do about pigmented skin on the knees and the elbows? That may be a device uh, procedure, but I actually am not familiar with it. So I can't help with that one. I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. Let's see, here we go. This is from Michelle. I was told I have actinic keratosis on the bridge of my nose and the dermatologist wanted to freeze it. I was not sure what other options are available and what is the best method or what else can be done. If nothing is done, what can it lead to? Well, luckily, if she was if she's listening, I did answer a little bit about that earlier. Actinic keratosis is the precancerous changes that can happen, especially common on the face, also very common on the back of the hands or the arms. Actinic keratosis, actinic means from the sun and keratosis is like a, a change in the kerat keratinocyte, which is the surface cell of the skin. Seborrheic keratosis is a different type of a keratosis that's harmless and benign, but actinic keratosis is potentially precancerous. We call we think of it as precancerous, although there was some research a few years ago trying to track how likely it is that these actinic keratoses will ever turn into skin cancer. So I don't know if we know that 100% of them will, but they are on that path. And actinic uh, keratosis is something that we should try to treat and get rid of. I did mention earlier that, that, that freezing with the liquid nitrogen, that's the doctor giving controlled medical frostbite. It's the easiest because it kills the cells for you. You don't have to do anything at home. Um, the goal is to kill the cells. They have to be killed and removed. So freezing them is one way it, it damages the cells. They will blister maybe a little bit. They get a little red and swollen. They feel injured and your skin says, these cells are injured, let's get rid of them. And it dries them up, peels them off and you get new skin underneath. Uh, we sometimes will scrape, physically scrape off those cells, but that's really no better. Then that for that, you get numbing, 
probably with a needle, the doctor would physically scrape the cells off and you definitely would get more of a scar with that treatment. And then the other option is, are those creams, the creams you do yourself, you have to do them at home over several weeks on and off. And either way, no matter what, with all of these treatments, you should follow up with your dermatologist because we want to make sure those bad cells are gone. If they're not gone after the first treatment, we may try to treat another way or treat again. If they're not gone after the second attempt, we may biopsy them or do a more aggressive type of removal to make sure you don't have cells sitting on your face that lead to cancer because then you get surgery, um, potentially get surgery and you may have an even bigger scar. We want to get rid of them before you get to that step. Hey, you know, this is interesting. Gina in the chat said, maybe it's my imagination, but some of my skin tags fell off when I changed my diet. Well, Gina, it's interesting you say that because since I've been studying lifestyle medicine, um, I've actually come, come to the conclusion and the, come to the theory, which I'm still observing and testing that I believe that skin tags and even those benign keratosis, the seborrheic keratosis I just mentioned may sometimes be triggered by uh, increased growth hormone in the skin. Uh, that's coming from the inside and increased growth hormone can be triggered by F, which is like, like growth factor triggers growth. So it's tr probably triggering the growth of skin tags and these benign keratoses. Am I, am I freezing at all? Yeah, you did for a minute, but you came back. So yeah. Okay. The insulin-like growth factor is may maybe, this is my theory, I think that there is some evidence gathering about this, insulin-like growth factor triggering growth of benign things that we don't want in our skin, the keratosis, the benign keratoses, the skin tags, and insulin-like growth factor increases when we have increased insulin and increased blood sugar running around. It's that sort of pre-diabetic or diabetic state of our bodies. So when we change the diet to become more plant-based, we reduce our blood sugar spikes. We reduce our insulin levels and our insulin spikes. And that insulin-like growth factor is also reduced in the amount it's running around our body. And I think it does reduce the pressure on people. I hate when her sound cuts out. Come on, sound. Uh oh, is it back? Yeah, it's just you know what. When we're next time, just make sure you have like the most recent Zoom and the most recent Google. You know, updates. I do. I have. I'm all updated. Maybe I'm sorry. It's just maybe it's just a glitch in New York today. Don't worry about it. But thank you. You know, people are saying as like Susan, sunscreens uh, have carcinogenic things in them. They're unsafe. But but zinc oxide's safe, right? That has no bad stuff in it for us. Zinc oxide is safe. You know, oxybenzone is one of the players that got a very bad reputation recently. And a lot of the companies that are even over the counter drugstore companies like Neutrogena, they're reformulating everything to remove that ingredient. But skin cancer has killed more people than sunscreen ever did. So I just want people to remember not to become afraid of all chemicals and we always have to balance the, the good and the bad and the risks. Make sure if you're going to not use sunscreen that you use 
building in your in Okay, you're totally um, freezing now because you, you, you said just remember you said skin cancer has killed more people than sunscreen ever has or chemicals have, and so just remember if you're not going to use sunscreen, then what? If you're not going to use sunscreen, use sun protective clothing and make sure you don't get sunburned. Don't expose yourself too much because skin cancer does kill people for real. And it makes people very, very sick and it's worth some balance. Well, she's saying, well, maybe this, this, the bad sunscreen caused the cancer. Is there any way to prove that? Um, no, I don't, I don't, um, believe that in humans, in actual humans, that's ever been proven. They're working in a lab to try to see what they can figure out. But so far, there's no evidence that the sunscreen itself has caused the skin cancer. Perfect. Thank you. This is from Dana. She says, hi, Dr. Grant. I'm 67 and had a facelift nine years ago. At this time, I do not have loose skin, but I have loss of volume in my temples and under my cheekbones. Do you think Sculptra would be a good choice to build back my collagen? Could it overbuild collagen in an area? Do you think it's a natural look? Thanks for all your advice. I hope I don't cut out again. I apologize if I do. Um, Tam, I don't know, think- We don't know what Sculptra is, by the way, or at least I don't yes. know. Yes, oh, I will explain. Sculptra is a, is a type of a molecule called polylactic acid that is injected superficially into the skin to try to trigger the formation of new collagen. And it's different from what we think of as fillers because it doesn't go under the skin and get put in there to create a shape. It just gets injected all over the area to try to build new collagen in the skin layer itself. I have mixed feelings about Sculptra. Some people are really true strong believers that it really makes a difference in just softening volume and thickening. But I don't know if I believe yet that it has long-term benefits that are noticeable to regular people. Um, in terms of the temples, and the, the, I think it I think would be necessary. I don't think the sculpture would be able to create enough volume to fix the hollowing of the temples, which is, you know, something that we notice more and more right up in this area. Usually that may need a filler underneath that's a little deeper that can fill out the volume of the whole area. Great. Thank you. And there was a little freezing, but hopefully they got that. Here's a, an interesting question. I don't think you've answered so far on the show from Elaine. Is it true that once you stop Retin-A, all the effects will diminish? Well, I always say with every treatment that I do, lasers and everything else, that these things help to turn the clock back or to slow the clock down, but the clock keeps ticking. So for sure, while you're using Retin-A, it's helping to keep your skin healthier and younger. But when you stop using it, of course, your skin will continue to age. So it's not that your skin will catch up as though you never used it, but if you're, if you're using it, Reasons. Am I? It's frustrating. I don't know how to fix it, but um, if you said it's it's not like the skin will you'll, it'll catch up, you know. 
it's not that this, it will catch up. It won't catch up as though you had never used it. Right. Like it won't be like, like one day you look 40 and then they stop and the next day you look 80. Right. (laughs) But you'll, you're the aging of your skin will get back to a normal pace. Wow. That's interesting. So it, for, as far as you know, for right now, it's safe for people to use it like all the time, forever, if you will. As far as I know, it's safe. You know, I think that it may over decades of use change the texture of the skin a little bit. I've seen some people who have been using it for decades and maybe the skin's a little thin, but it's hard to know whether that is their normal skin from aging or whether it was created in any way by that long-term use of the, of the retinoids. Right. I think most people worry just about what they look like right now, not what they're going to look like later (laughs) into the future. Uh, Christy asks, can can rosacea be controlled by a vegan diet? I don't want to go to a doctor only to be told I need a prescribed pill to avoid sweat because I work out regularly and sweat often or give up my preferred food, which is spicy food. Well, sweat does not cause rosacea, but getting hot does flare some types of rosacea. If you're doing something that increases your blood flow and your cheeks get pink from exercise, that's the, what's causing the increase in rosacea over time. The blood vessels will eventually become more permanently expanded and hold on to that redness. It's not the sweat itself. So it's not that sweating is bad for your skin. Spicy food is something that when you eat the spicy food, if your cheeks get pink, it's the pinkness of the increased blood flow that does become more permanent. So if you can eat spicy food and your face skin does not get pink or hot or red, if you, you know, then not really making your worse because of this, that's where I know. You don't necessarily pill. First of all, there are creams that are very helpful in rosacea that are prescription. So you don't have to get a pill from a doctor. You could get a cream, but there are lifestyle changes that can help some rosacea. And some of that is not only a vegan diet, but a whole food unprocessed as your, as your amazing book is titled chef AJ, um, unprocessed um, diet. So those are, that's anti-inflammatory. It's very high fiber, which helps reduce the uh, inflammation in your gut and balance your microbiome. And when your microbiome in your gut is healthy and balanced and anti-inflammatory, it does actually reduce the tendency to rosacea. Rosacea is also triggered. Now we know by something called SIBO, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. That's an imbalance in unhealthy bacteria in the small intestine. That really does may need medication addressable by should be help you probably should see I doctor. But if you really have true SIBO, that can trigger rosacea. So you might be able to fix improve rosacea with diet. It's possible. Great. Thank you. It always seems to cut out at the most pivotal moment when it does cut out, you know, that's kind of, Oh funny. no. Did it happen again? But it, it's been happening a lot, but I don't think there's anything you could do because even if you repeat it, it could cut out again. And I apologize guys, this doesn't normally happen. Benito asks, 
Is head and shoulders okay to use for seborrheic dermatitis or is there something else you'd recommend? I am very comfortable with, you know, over-the-counter products. I'm not somebody that avoids all commercial products. So head and shoulders has zinc pyrithione, which is one of the tried and true reliable medications for, for seborrheic dermatitis, which is the medical term for dandruff. Remember that it's zinc. We're actually just talking about zinc and it's just a way to get zinc into your scalp. So you can also eat uh, more zinc in your diet with, with more eating more nuts and seeds and see if that will help too. Terrific. All right. Got so many, so many questions. And by the way, somebody wrote a really nasty comment in my YouTube that I was looking down. I don't know how else to read the questions. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I could, I could go like this, but that's why I look down. It's not that I don't want to look at the beautiful Dr. Krant, but that's how I can read best. So Wendy says, can you please talk a little bit about long-term use of salicylic acid and Aziliac acid for acne. I've been whole food plant-based for two years, which got rid of my painful cystic acne, but I was left with discoloration and still a few blemishes here and there. Salicylic acid and azelaic acid seem to help keep them under control and improve the overall appearance of my skin. Are there any downsides to using these long-term? As far as I know, and as far as we know now, there are no downsides to using salicylic acid and Azelaic acid long term. Salicylic acid is. Isn't that uh, aspirin? Isn't that what aspirin well, is? Well, I was just going to mention that. You know, it's very, it'll sound familiar because aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid, which is a cousin of it chemically, but it's not the same thing. Salicylic acid is the only beta hydroxy acid that we use in the skin. All of the other acids, the glycolics, the ascorbic acids, the fruit acids, the lactic acid, those are all alpha hydroxy acids. And they helped uh, exfoliate the surface of the skin. The salicylic acid, the beta hydroxy acid, it's a little bit better at going into the pores and helping clean out the pores. That's why it's very helpful for acne. Azelaic acid is sort of a new kid on the block and it's really an amazing cream. I recommend it to many of my patients. It helps, I hope you can hear me. It helps to not only to reduce inflammation and help to fight acne, but it also turns down the production of pigment by the melanocytes, the pigment forming cells. So it helps to fade discolorations and brown spots um, of all different types. And it helps to treat rosacea. It helps to treat acne. It's actually very safe and gentle and safe enough, um, you know, even to potentially eat accidentally. So don't eat it, but it's really considered one of the safer creams that we use. And it's very effective for many things. I never heard of it, but what, what else would a person use it for other than acne? We could use it for helping in with melasma, which we mentioned before. We could use it for um, sun damage discoloration, or actually one of the things that uh, people who have a history of a very superficial type of a melanoma, which is a skin cancer that is very dangerous. Um, we can sometimes doctors will use azelaic acid after the treatment in an ongoing way to keep the pigment production from those cells down in the area where the melanoma was. And, you know, there's some theory that it may help reduce the risk of recurrence of the melanoma 
but I would not rely on that to treat the melanoma or guarantee that it would prevent recurrence. It's just a theory. Nice. Are these uh, prescription or available uh, on, um, over the counter? The salicylic acid and the azelaic acid are both available over the counter without prescription. Perfect. We have time for one more question. I know you're so busy. Thank you for taking the time in between patients. And the person submitted in advance, but I see that she's watching live, which is fabulous when that happens. Kathy says, can anything be done after the fact for somewhat extensive MOHS surgery on the nose? For example, can skin be added back? Mohs surgery. MOHS is actually not an acronym as a lot of people assume it is. It's actually named after Frederick Mose, MOHS, the dermatologist who invented the technique, which is a specialized curative technique for skin cancer surgery that is tissue sparing. It, it, it takes the least amount of skin away with the highest cure rate of all of the treatments that we have of skin cancer. So on the face, it's definitely the best way to treat a true skin cancer. It does remove all of the cells with, can uh, with cancerous changes as much as possible, uh, more than any other technique. But where, wherever the cancer goes, the Mohs surgery will trace it there. The, the Mohs surgeon, who is a dermatologic dermatologist, specially trained in Mohs, like I actually am a fellowship trained Mohs surgeon, another hat you probably didn't know that I wear. I don't do Mohs right now, but I did a fellowship and I did Mohs for many years. The surgeon herself actually looks at the tissue under the microscope right in the office while the cells are being removed and make sure that as many as possible are removed. All the visible cells are out. You don't have to wait two weeks to find out and then go back and take more. When the area is reconstructed, it can potentially be disfigured if it was very, very extensive. There's always a chance later on to potentially have a plastic surgeon or your dermatologic surgeon either do some reconstructive surgery and do another little skin graft to add in some skin or do some laser to smooth out scar tissue and try to blend it in. There's always more that can be done but it's also true that scars improve forever over time. In six months, in one year, in two years, the scar tissue will be continually changing and remodeling and improving. So don't give up, keep at it. Ask your surgeon or different surgeons if there's anything they think they can do. But do remember that any procedure also has its own risks. So only go to board certified people in the specialties that they're supposed to be in and go to somebody with a lot of experience. Good advice for anything. Go to somebody with a lot of experience. Well, thank you, Dr. Grant. You're a, a plethora of information and knowledge, and I appreciate your time. And I look forward to having you back next month because there was a lot of questions that we still have to get to. Well, thank you, Chef AJ. And hopefully next time, no tech issues. Apologies to everybody. Yeah, yeah maybe just yeah. listen to a few minutes so you can kind of hear what it is. And, you know, maybe it's just, just you know, just that, just today. Well, so. I was getting some, uh, your internet is unstable notices today that I've never gotten before. So something yeah. might be going on in the yeah. neighborhood. Good, good, good. Better, better you than me. No, just kidding. So thanks so much, Dr. Krant. Thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow for Nikki Davis, MD. She's going to be making some oil-free dips and chips. Plant-based, of course. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.